Brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Quadcast. I'm Dana Humphrey, associate director of the Mary Christie Institute. Today, I'll be joined by two current students at the University of Michigan who work with the Healthy Minds Network. Akila Patterson is a doctoral student in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. She's now a research associate with the Healthy Minds Network. And Meghna Singh is a community and global public health student at the University of Michigan who works as a student associate study coordinator for the Healthy Minds Study for secondary schools. Akila and Meghna, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So I'm so excited to talk to you both today. You were both referred to us by our friend Sarah Lipson, who we love working with. I think we should just start with each of you describing which study you work on for the Healthy Minds Network and what you do there. So Akila, let's start with you. Yes, thank you again for having us. I am a research associate for the Healthy Minds Study, which is one of our research studies that focuses on mental health among college students in the United States. And we do have some schools internationally that participate as well. As you mentioned, I am a doctoral student, and so I do work on this project part-time. But prior to starting the doctoral program, I joined the team in 2019 as a study coordinator for the Healthy Mind Study and became project manager for the team as well. And so I've been working with the Healthy Mind Study since about 2019. I've seen it grow tremendously since then. And so it's really been exciting to see the work that we've been able to do over the years. And so our study really focuses on college student mental health and related health behavior. So we do focus on depression, anxiety, suicidal uh, behaviors, suicidality, things of that sort. And then we also do look at some related behaviors that might either contribute to mental health issues that students might face or help assist them in improving their mental health and engaging with their campus a lot more and having a lot more satisfaction during their time at their campus. And so those health behaviors could be something related to sleep, as we know that sleep does impact mental health. Also, it could be looking at issues related to racism on their college campus, as that has been shown to negatively impact students of color in particular. So it's really interesting to see all of the data that we're really able to collect and all of the different topics that we explore to really give us a wide picture of what students are experiencing on their college campuses, what they are experiencing specifically related to their mental health, and how can campuses really address these issues that students are facing. And I'd be happy to talk a little bit about the study that I work on, which is modeled off of HMS for colleges and universities. So I work on the study named the Healthy Mind Study for Secondary Schools, or HMS2, and it's specifically created to assess high school student mental health and well-being. And it was created in the 2020 year, and that's when I joined the team, and we piloted it over the last two years. And we really recognize that there needs to be a study that focuses on high school mental health and well-being, really trying to start the conversation earlier about mental health and gather that data earlier on in young people's lives. And so we have the same modular design as the Healthy Mind Study for Colleges, and we've specifically adapted it to make sure that the questions that we're asking, the, the wording of the questions is relevant for younger people who are in that high school age range. So we're asking questions 
about mental health, well-being, service utilization, related behaviors, just like Akila mentioned, as well as we've added questions about vaping, screen usage, social media, which are especially relevant for high school students. We also ask questions that are uh, based on the type of school. So we recognize that students who go to school during the day may have a little bit of a different experience than students who are boarding. And we really want to make sure that each student in each school has a unique experience. And so I personally have helped write lots of the study documents, create a questionnaire, assent forms and things like that. And our study works really closely with the Jed Foundation and their high school team to connect with schools across the country to, again, assess high school student mental health and well-being. And we hope to grow to be as robust as the colleges study as we're learning more about the high school population, the unique needs of younger people, and really trying to capture just, again, what their needs are, where their mental health lies, and how we can provide recommendations to improve mental health and well-being at a younger age before students potentially go to colleges and universities or wherever their life trajectory takes them. Thanks so much, Akila and Magna. And Akila, we're very familiar with the Healthy Mind Study because we use your data all the time. And Magna, I'm excited in a little bit to talk a little bit more about what you're learning through the high school survey. So Akila, some of your research interests are in the mental health of students of color, graduate students, and non-traditional students like older students. What are some of the unique needs of these groups on campus? Definitely. So there are a lot of unique needs for these groups on college campuses, and we're learning a lot more about what these needs are specifically related to student satisfaction with their college campuses. We're also learning a lot about the prevalence of mental health and the needs of these students in particular, as well as their service utilization, specifically to their college campus counseling center that they may or may not utilize. And so from year to year, we have about 100 campuses that participate in HMS annually. So it really gives us a wide picture of what students are experiencing. And so for students of color in particular, we found that prevalence of mental health is really increasing for all students, but particularly for students of color. In uh, the past year, we've seen more than a 50% increase in the prevalence of mental health concerns among students of color. And regarding their service utilization, we're also seeing a treatment gap that exists for students of color in particular. So we're seeing prevalence rates. However, we're seeing much lower service utilization rates among these students. And so it's really giving us a broad picture of what might be going on with students of color in particular. And so we're hoping to learn a lot more about the needs of these groups on their campuses. And so for graduate students as well, there are unique needs for for them in particular because their programs are a bit different in nature. Their programs might be a little bit more stressful. They might have higher expectations from their degree programs. And then also for some graduate students, they might be seeking a terminal degree such as an MD or JD or PhD. And so for those students, they might experience a a bit more stress and have a bit more pressure related to their college campus experience. And so for graduate students as well, we're also finding that they do tend to be a little bit older and some might have families or children to care for. And so they have specific needs as well. And then there are various needs for different types of graduate students. And so it is really important for campuses to pay close attention to the needs of their graduate students, in particular for the programs that they have on their campuses, because that might look different from campus to campus. And it's really important that that college campuses pay close attention to what the needs of their students are in particular 
related to graduate schooling. Thanks, Akila. And I know that you recently published a paper that shed some light on that increasing treatment gap that you spoke about for students of color. Do you want to just tell us the name of that and where it's published? Yes, I'd love to talk a little bit about this paper. So this paper is called Trends in College Student Mental Health and Help Seeking by Race Ethnicity, Findings from the National Healthy Mind Study from 2013 to 2021. And it can be found in the Journal for Effective Disorders. We've also shared it a bit on our Twitter as well. If anyone is interested in following our Twitter account, we've talked a little bit about it. And it's been featured in some other magazines and newspapers and things of that sort too, which is really exciting to see this research being shared pretty widely throughout various outlets. So it really gives a good picture of what college students of color have been experiencing over the past eight years. Yes, definitely. Thanks so much. And I encourage our listeners to read that. Magna, you mentioned you primarily work with the high school survey. Could you talk a little bit about why the Healthy Minds Network is focusing on high schools and what are you learning about the mental health of younger students? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to touch upon HMS too. So between 2019 and 2020, I wasn't a part of of the team then, but I know that they had many conversations about wanting to talk about mental health at an earlier age than college students and recognizing that, you know, before students become college students, they are high school students and middle school students and before that elementary school students and really just trying to start that conversation earlier is really key. And so the Healthy Mind Study wanted to grow basically to assess mental health and well-being at a younger age so we can get data and inform mental health programs and policies, trainings and things of that sort at the high school level because they've already done it and done it really well, as Akila had mentioned, at the college level. And again, really to try to invest in mental health at an earlier age. And I think it's super important to do this and really to open the conversation about well-being, especially because 50% of lifetime mental illnesses start by age 14. And 75% by age 24. And so we're really talking about this transitional aged youth and young adult timeframe. And that statistic is according to the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And so that's one of the reasons why we wanted to adapt the Healthy Mind Study for colleges, specifically for high school and boarding school students. And that's what we did in that 2019 to 2020 year. And in the past two years, we have piloted the survey. We've received immense and tremendous feedback from our partners. So the schools that we've worked with, the Judd Foundation, and all the PIs and, and team members of, of our of, of the Healthy Minds Network in general. And so we are are focusing on mental health, service utilization, and related behaviors and outcomes. And we're really hoping to use this data as we grow our cohort of schools that we're working with to really advocate for mental health support, both formally, so in school settings, in the local communities, through counseling and therapy, as well as informal sources of support, like mentorship and peer support and things of that sort, because we know that these are key factors to help support mental health and well-being of of young, young folks. And again, try to provide this data that can help inform policies, practices, and programming. And so we've run the Healthy Mind Study for secondary schools for HMS2 for, I think it's 12 or 13 schools now. And we are looking to have a larger cohort this upcoming year, again, to, to really try to get these surveys out there that focus on just mental health and well-being and really make it a priority for school administrators, school districts, and that sort to invest in young people's mental health because we really know that investment is worthwhile in the long term and in terms of, of people's overall
overall life and well-being. Thanks, Magna. And I understand it's just in the pilot phase, but have there been any findings that have really stuck out to you or surprised you in any way? And is there like an interesting comparison with the older cohort of college students that the Healthy Mind study is looking at? Yeah, so preliminary analyses that we've looked at from the past two years of data show that around 27% of students screen at risk or high risk for anxiety, and 23% of students screen at risk or high risk for depression. And I believe that this was a pool of the 12 schools that we've worked with, around 3,000 students. And I think that this data is a really great start, and we hope to just continue to grow our cohort in the years to come so that we can make national comparisons for different types of schools different locations of schools, and really just be able to be on par with the other national surveys that exist that focus on, for example, both mental health and physical health, or are looking at, you know, unique groups of students. And I think that our goals for this study is to scale it up in the coming years to match what the Healthy Mind Study for Colleges is doing, and to be able to, you know, in the next five, 10 years or so, be able to produce a paper just like the one Akila was mentioning that looks at trends specifically by race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, because we know that for each identity group, they have unique needs. And so right now we haven't broken that data down, but we are hoping to do that this summer, as well as in the coming years as we continue to grow our cohort. But I think it's really important just to recognize that younger people are facing mental health issues and at increasing rates. And especially with the pandemic, I think that has exacerbated mental health issues and brought it to the forefront of a lot of conversations, which I'm grateful for. But I also think we need to, you know, act upon that. And now that we have this preliminary data from the Healthy Mind study, or other studies that may be out there, whether that's from the Trevor Project or the CDC, really trying to pull this information together to then advocate for trainings, policy changes, programming in schools, and the, really the connection to resources such as counseling and therapy, and that support for young people is critical. And especially as they transition to college, jobs, working, and all of that in the future. Definitely. Those transition points are difficult enough as it is, never mind the pandemic and just increasing mental health issues overall. Magna, you mentioned peer support, and I just want to go back that there for one second because I know that you have an interest in it and some past experience with it. So can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in middle and high school, I was a part of various peer-led programs. And so the ones that I was a part of, we would teach students about various various topics. Mainly they were wellness focused, but it ranged from resilience, social emotional learning topics, meditation, mindfulness, yoga. And I really found from personal experience that my peers were more engaged versus when we would have, you know, an outside presenter come in and speak at a big assembly hall. You didn't know or have a connection with that person, but really I was able to connect with my high school peers or middle school peers at the time. And I think that that just speaks to the benefit of peer support. I know that if you are talking to someone who is close to your age, it's more often than not that you'll be able to find some connection to that person and be able to relate to them. You have similar life experiences or trajectories. And I think that peer support is really a key resource that we should be tapping into and advocating for. And so at the college level, one uh, program that I've loved learning about and being part of over the last couple years and supporting is named Wolverine Support Network. And so at the University of Michigan, we are the Michigan Wolverines. And this program is modeled off of the support network. And this program hosts weekly peer facilitated support groups. 
And the whole idea behind this program is to have students take one hour of their week and prioritize their mental health and well-being. And they meet with a small group of students, which is led by a peer who has been trained in skills like motivational interviewing, crisis intervention, dialogue, and that connection to resources. And it's a non-judgmental group that meets either in person or virtually. And you meet with these same folks every week throughout the academic year. And it builds that community, allows you to share whatever you're going through, highs and lows, some of the struggles and stressors that you're facing with this supportive community of other students. And so I think that this is a really great model and example of what peer support can look like and what it can look like on a college campus. And I know that um, that there are some schools in, in my local area, in the Bay Area, that are trying to model this as well, really trying to create and foster that peer support because students are more likely to potentially to confide in, in their peers, let others know when they're not doing well, and hopefully those students who are trained can be that liaison to professional resources and support. And I really hope that that opens the conversation about mental health and about how people are doing for real and also allows that connection to resources, mentors, adults who can then take that next step and connect them to professional support. And so I think peer peer support is a really important topic and idea. And I know that the Healthy Mind Study for Colleges has collected data in the past about peer support. And I highly recommend um, looking into some of these types of, of programs, whether they're educational or group peer supports, I think it's it's a really key resource moving forward. Yeah, thanks so much, Magna. And it's funny, MCI is doing a paper on peer support at the time, which is one of the reasons I wanted to hear a little bit about your perspective on it. And one of the programs that we're learning about is the support network, because I think they just have such an interesting model. Akila, do you have um, any experience with peer support? I don't have any experience directly with leading like a peer support group or anything of that nature. But I did want to comment on in particular for graduate students and how important peer support is for graduate students, because especially for PhD students, it can be a pretty isolating experience. And then also for students who might be relocating to a new area to start a new graduate program, it might be difficult to meet people and really get to engage with your peers on the graduate level. And so peer support is really important for graduate students, especially now that we are seeing that campuses are starting to um, do more events on campus and have more in-person engagement. Whereas in the past couple of years, graduate students have really struggled during the COVID time period because they have really been isolated and have really felt that isolation. And so peer support is such a, a a key important piece for the graduate student experience, especially because it sometimes can be an isolating experience for for many. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I think it's just such an important piece of the continuum of options for how to improve college student mental health, high school student mental health. It's one input. Obviously, we know that not every student can be seen by the counseling centers on college campuses other options have to exist. And I I think this is a really, really interesting one to explore more. And we will have more to come on that later this year. So switching tacks a little bit, both of you have an interest in improving access to mental health care for college students, for students generally, certainly in terms of 
increasing the numbers of counselors supporting students on campus, but also related to cultural competence, cultural sensitivity, and improving the diversity of mental health counselors on college campuses. Can you talk a little bit about why these topics are so important? We can start with you, Akilah. Definitely. These topics are so important, especially for students of color on college campuses, and also in particular for students of color who might attend predominantly white institutions. And so having representation related to counselors or local resources that provide in-person therapy or virtual therapy as well. And so students of color have expressed through not only our survey, but other research as well, that they would like to see more counselors that look like them or who understand their various cultural aspects, might understand their background a bit easier. And they find that it's easier to discuss the things that they might be experiencing with someone who understands, especially related to racism and the stress that students might feel related to, especially this current climate. And then there also might be incidents related to racism that they, students might experience on their specific campus as well that they might like to talk about. And so they have expressed that it might be a bit easier for them to discuss it with someone who might have a better understanding or who look like them. And so for campuses that do not have many counselors of color, it's important that they do train their current counselors on cultural humility so that students of color who are seeking services on their campus are not experiencing issues related to race or their background, in addition to the experiences that they might be going to the counseling center to to discuss. And so it's important that this training is is done for, for current counselors on their campus so that they do have a sense of cultural humility and so that they don't feel like that is a burden for them. And so college campuses can also, I think it's important, attempt to recruit counselors of color to their campus and increase the number of counselors, particularly counselors of color. And so I think that would be an enormous resource for students of color in particular on their campuses. And then also having access to local resources as well might be helpful for students of color. And so if there are local resources that focus on diverse populations related to mental health, and if college campuses can support students in utilizing those services and assist them with accessing those services, that will also really help students of color on their campus in relation to their mental health. And so while counseling and therapy are important, I would also like to mention that for students of color in particular, there are various beliefs related to counseling and therapy. So it's also important that in addition to making sure that there is representation in your counselors, that campuses also recognize that there are other sources of support related to mental health. And we talked a a bit about peer support being one of them. And so in addition to various cultural beliefs related to therapy, in 2020 and 2021, more than 60% of students of color met the criteria for one or more mental health problem. And so while this figure might be a bit high because this data was collected right in the first year of the pandemic, it really shows the increasing prevalence of mental health concerns that campuses might not be able to keep up with the demand. And as we know now, there are long wait times on many college campuses related to counseling. And so campuses can also invest in evidence-based programs that focus on providing support for mental health in ways other than individual therapy, which will be helpful not only for wait times, but also for students of color who might not have any interest in 
seeking counseling or therapy for a variety of reasons. And so it's important that that need is supported and recognized and that students don't feel further stigmatized by maybe not wanting to seek counseling or therapy and that they feel supported in that choice, but that there are other ways that they can seek support on their campuses that don't necessarily involve counseling or therapy. Yeah, thanks, Akilah. I think that's a really important point. And I wanted to just comment on something you said earlier as well about if students are having harmful experiences or experiences that they perceive to be harmful at the counseling center, students of color are having experiences with counselors that don't have a basic cultural competence, that it really will discourage them and their peers from seeking help in the future. And I think that's such an important point to make. So thank you. Magna, I want to ask you the same question about why these topics are so important to you. Yeah, I would be happy to to chime in about why I think these topics are so important. And I'd love to start off by just sharing a little bit about like from my experience personally as a person of color. I know that when I first started learning about mental health and in particular suicide prevention as I lost a peer to suicide in 2014, mental health wasn't really discussed in my circles of being of South Asian descent, specifically Indian. There is a huge stigma even amongst some of my own family members about mental health because it's a condition in which people can't see. It's often connected to genetics or brain chemistry. And also there's a behavioral component and environmental component as well, just in general. But what would happen is when I'd have conversations about mental health with some of my family members or just community members, they would try to brush it under the rug because it's not a condition in which they could see physically like a broken arm. But I think it's so important to treat mental health just like you do physical health. But that's been an ongoing conversation that I've had to have with some of my fellow community members and people from my um, Indian community because the stigma is perpetuated about people who have mental health conditions and sort of what it may look like or how they're struggling and things of that sort. And I think that's one of the reasons why some people may not feel comfortable going to counseling or therapy, just from my own personal experience. And so that's what I've experienced on a personal level. And I see Akilah had had hinted at this of just, you know, some people may not feel comfortable going to see counselors professionally, or there, there may be long wait times and just a, a myriad of reasons as to why they aren't receiving that professional help. But I think that what what we call at the Healthy Minds Network, informal sources of support are just as important. So that peer support, mentorship, positive friends, having that community in which they feel like they can belong is absolutely critical. Uh, and I think Akila touched on this earlier as well, is, is for to train your current counselors to have cultural humility is really key. And for me, cultural humility is this ongoing process of learning and learning about other people's cultures, other people's stigmas, barriers, challenges that they may be facing, conditions in their life that could be contributing positively or negatively to their mental health. And I think that differs from cultural competency because the term competence could mean like that there's a there's an end stopping point of learning or you think at one point in time you can learn everything when I think humility or sensitivity, cultural humility or sensitivity is a better just phrasing of it because it should be, in my opinion, an ongoing 
lifelong process. And I definitely think, you know, increasing the capacity of counselors, so hiring more counselors, more counselors of color, training current counselors to have culture humility and bias trainings and things of that sort is really critical to try to open that door of resources to students and offer them a range of formal and informal sources of support on their campus, whether that's at the high school level or the college level or even local resources as students are transitioning and going about different paths in their life. I think that that's really critical. And having that just cultural awareness, I think, is is key and something that we should be paying attention to moving forward because every person has different identities that are part of, of who they are. And I think that that needs to be addressed when you're thinking about their mental health and trying to improve it and support them. And again, whatever way that works best for them. Thank you, Magna. That was very well said. And thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts. I wanted to give you one last moment to share any parting thoughts or comments. Akila, let's start with you. Definitely. Thank you. So I would love to share a little bit about, in part, how I started working and focusing my research on mental health. Because when I started my undergraduate experience in 2010, no one talked about mental health almost at all. It was not a focus in any orientation sessions. There was definitely maybe a couple mentions of there being a counseling center on campus that was available to you, but there wasn't really a thorough discussion related to what mental health looks like, what anxiety looks like, what depression looks like, how to recognize the signs maybe within yourself or with your friends, and how to have even discussions about mental health with your peers in hopes of supporting your friends who might be experiencing any type of, of concern. I love that since 2010, in like my own personal experience, that campuses look completely different related to the discussion of mental health. Because now, 12 years later, <laughs> I guess I'm dating myself a bit, but 12 years later, it is a primary topic on college campuses, which I think is so important. And so when I was finishing my undergraduate experience, that's when I started to hear a little bit more about the topic of mental health and when I started to explore it a bit more myself and when people were actually starting to talk about it. And so it's been really great to see over the years how much more open people are of talking about mental health, of sharing their own personal stories, of sharing ideas related to mental health with their parents and older generations. And so I think it's really important that we continue these discussions. And although I see these discussions about there might not be a, a solution to the issue of improving mental health on college campuses, I do disagree with that and do feel that these discussions, they don't necessarily perpetuate any issues related to mental health, but that they really just bring light to mental health and really illuminate what we all might be have been facing previously silently. And so it's important that that these discussions are had. And I'm really excited to see the change over just my my lifetime. Yeah, I totally agree. I graduated in 2010. And I can say that college is so different now than when I was attending just solely based on the idea that like this is such a discussed issue that young people feel so comfortable talking about these issues, it, it was not talked about when I was in college and it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> Just to see even over the past seven years that we've been at this at MCI to see the focus, increased focus on this, you know, even from like a top down approach, you know, obviously students have been 
talking about this for a while. And now we see administrators, college presidents, you know, deans all really, really invested in this issue. So I, I think it's all, I agree. I think it's all going the right direction. Um, Magna, I wanted to give you a last moment for parting thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much. I actually just wanted to build upon your last comment about mental health becoming a priority in recent years. And I I have loved the fact that mental health is now a more open topic to discuss. It's less stigmatized in many communities, which is great. And I think in post-secondary education, colleges and universities, there is starting to be an investment in mental health. And that has to happen financially through education and just really prioritizing the health and well-being of entire communities. So not only the students, whether they're undergraduate students or graduate students, but also faculty and staff members at universities. And this goes for the the high school level, boarding schools. And I think it should be in every community. And I hope that we're working in that direction. And I really think that there's a lot of power in having conversations and open dialogue from a very personal, you know, one-on-one or small group basis of when you're letting people know that, hey, you know what, I'm not having a great day, or I need to take some time away from the screen or, you know, I just need to take take a break and being honest about that and really checking in with yourself about how you are doing personally. And then letting other people know the steps that you're taking to support your mental health. I think that that's absolutely key and should continue to happen because with these conversations, it's really a ripple effect. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And that's exactly what we need to keep that momentum going are these conversations as well as financial investment in mental health resources and supports that are diverse so that each person can find exactly what works for them. And I think that that's really critical. And the last thing that I would say is for people who are in school settings or you know working with young people, Please ask your young people what they need and how they can best be supportive, and they will tell you. I found that through personal experience that young people want to share about some of their experiences and how they're doing, and really just giving them that space when they feel comfortable and safe to do so and to advocate for their own needs, that that's a really, really great way to figure out what are your next steps for your organization, for your school, for your workplace, really to try to improve mental health and well-being is to get that youth voice, that youth feedback and ask them how they're doing and how you can best support them. And so I hope that folks who are listening take that message with them and connect with their young people, whether it's in their lives professionally or personally, and try to get that feedback from them. And so we can really create a community of people who are wrapping their hands and arms around these young people and and supporting them not only where they're at now, but their future life trajectories as well. Thanks so much, Magna. I think that is so true and even more true in a time where we're all feeling a little bit more burnt out than we were a couple years ago. Thank you both so much for taking the time to chat today. I think it was such a valuable conversation and good luck to you both in your future endeavors in both the Healthy Mind studies. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.